not here in body. Is that okay to say? Okay. Well, we're continuing a message that we started uh, last week, a, a series that we started last week called Weakness in Strength. Weakness in Strength. The idea is this. We tend to read the Bible with a bit of a block in front of our eyes when we look at all these different people in the Bible, these great people of faith. You know, we look at Moses and we look at Last week it was John the Baptist, and today we're going to look at Elijah, and you look at Peter, and you look at all these people, these famous people in the Bible, we say, okay, 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 that's them, but I can't relate to them. I mean, they're like super giants in, in, in faith compared to me. I can't relate to those people. And the problem with that is that we really can relate to those people if we'll read the scripture carefully we can see kind of tucked in between the lines as it were you can see some of the weaknesses and the frailties and the faults and even the sins of some of the Bible's most famous most known people and we can learn a lot of lessons from studying those weaknesses and faults and frailties and sins so last week we looked at who do you remember Good, yeah, John the Baptist, right? And we looked at John the Baptist and a moment, uh, well, a moment of doubt in John the Baptist's life. And we can learn from that. We can learn how he handled that. We can learn the circumstances that led up to that doubt, how God uh, intervened in that, how Jesus intervened in that. So today we're going to look at this again and we're going to study the life, uh, at least in brief here, this is going to be a two-part message because it's such a serious subject, uh, but we're going to study the Old Testament prophet Elijah, all right? Not to be confused with Elisha, okay? Everybody say Elijah. Elijah. Okay, now say Elisha. Elisha. All right, so we're doing Elijah, the one with the J, all right? He comes first. In, in the history books, and then his, his uh, successor uh, is Elisha. So we're going to look at Elijah, and we're going to look at his depression. The depression of Elijah. Now, I know it gets quiet when you say that word in church circles, uh, but the reality is this is a very critical and relevant subject in people's lives, People of faith and people not of faith, depression is real and it is on the rise. It is on the rise even in young people, even in teenagers, even in pre-teens. We're seeing studies and we're seeing things that show that this is not something that's off to the side anymore. It hasn't been for years. This is a very front and center subject. And in the church, it is often frowned upon. How can a Christian, how can a person of faith get depressed? Aren't they supposed to be all praise the Lord and happy all the time? I mean, what's wrong with you? you? You have faith and you're depressed? Fix yourself. There's a big problem if you're depressed, right? Well, I want to show you what I'll call the depression of Elijah. A couple of passages for you. The first one from the New Testament. Uh, we, know it, we know it somewhat well if we've been in the church for any length of time. This is the famous mention of Elijah and his incredible 
prayer life. So James chapter 5, verses 17 and, uh, and 18, Elijah was a man just like us. And we love that because we say, okay, if he can pray the way that he prayed, then maybe I can learn to pray the way that Elijah prayed. And that's how James intends us to understand it. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. The, the language, the Greek language there reads more like this. He prayed in prayer that it would not rain. It's like the word is repeated. He, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain, get this, on the land for three and a half years. Well, if we don't get rain for three and a half weeks, we're in trouble. Three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Wow, what an incredible man of faith. What a prayer life. Like, how could he ever get depressed? Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, way back in the Old Testament. This is 9th century, mid-9th 9th century B.C. Uh, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 5. Now Ahab, I'll explain who he is soon. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah, this is the same Elijah, had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. This is Elijah the prophet. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. The depression of Elijah. Now you look at this and you say, whoa, I don't know who any of these people are. This doesn't really make any sense to me. It almost seems like this reaction of Elijah is so out of place. It's so out of character. What's really going on here? In order to understand this man and what's going on in his head, you have to understand the context of everything that he's gone through and everything that he has seen. So I'm going to give you a little history lesson here about the prophet Elijah, all right? Uh, to put it in brief, he ministered during the, the civil war in Israel. This, again, this is, this is 9th and 10th century B.C. is a long, long time ago. This is not our culture. This is not our part of the world. This is, this is a very, very old account. This is a very violent culture we're about to read about. Uh, very different than the world that we live in today. He ministered during the period of civil war in Israel during the reign of Ahab. All right, I'll explain more in just a few minutes. Mid-9th century B.C., so 850, 870, 870 to 850s. Scholars differ on this, but basically mid-9th century B.C. during the reign of Ahab. Full stop. The background for this is, I mean, it is so dramatic, it is so 
intense, you have to appreciate it as you approach uh, a look at Elijah's life. So there was a civil war in Israel. And that civil war was basically caused by the bad decisions of a king. His name starts with an S. Do you know what his name is? Good, yeah, in the front row, Solomon, right? So Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. At least the Bible says so. But he also made some really, really poor choices in terms of not only one marriage, but hundreds of them to hundreds of women who worshipped hundreds of different, well, maybe not hundreds, but who worshipped different gods than the God of the Old Testament, than Yahweh, than Jehovah. Are you with me so far? So Solomon, that was the biggest mistake that he made was, uh, to, to put it bluntly, he had a problem with the ladies. And he married and married and married and married and married, and he married people outside of the household of faith of his God. And he was the king of Israel. He was told specifically, you do not do that because you're going to bring all of this other religion, all these other gods into the nation, and you're going to bring destruction on the nation if you do that. And Solomon went and did his own thing over and over and over and over again. And of course, his hundreds of wives worship these different gods. Here's an image of one of them. Uh, this is Ashtoreth, and uh, this is a goddess of fertility. We found uh, some remnants of what this, the image would have looked like. And so the people in Israel start worshiping these other gods. And they did things in worship to these, these other gods that are difficult to mention, especially with kids in the room, so I won't go too, too far there. But you can use your imagination. I mean, you're talking about a very, very different religious view, a very different system of worship. It involved all kinds of nasty things, and this is now in the nation of Israel because of the poor choices, the repeated poor choices of King Solomon. You've got Ashtoreth there. You've got uh, Molech and Chemosh. Uh, this is where things got very, very violent because worship to those gods meant the sacrifice of little children. Uh, there are some today who, who use this as a, as a metaphor to talk about, uh, about the social uh, problem, if you can call it a social problem, of abortion. And they say, you know, uh, Moloch and Chemosh are alive and well. Look at all of these abortions. Okay, I, I would encourage you, uh, I'll be direct on this, to go and see that movie that just came out, Unplanned. Uh, it's probably out of theaters now. I would encourage you to watch it. It will present a perspective on that subject that you, you will definitely take an opinion on after you watch that movie. Anyway, back in that time, 2,800 years ago, you had, it was nasty. And you're talking about a time that's very violent. You're talking about a time where people, it, it, when they took land, they, they took everybody out. So it was either you take them out or they will take you out. Uh, Israel had many, many en enemies around her. It's a very violent culture. This is a, and now you've got all of these religions popping into the nation of Israel because of Solomon's poor choices. And lo and behold, in 1 Kings chapter 12, in the Old Testament, you see that the nation is split. 
And there is a civil war because ultimately of Solomon's poor decisions. And what you see there, if you, if you read the account, uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, would, uh, according to, to the, the prophetic word that was given, he would have the kingdom stripped from him and he would be left with only two tribes. And I put an image on the screen so you can really try and understand it. Uh, a man by the name of Jeroboam, who was a, a leader in Solomon's um, court, if you will, he ends up with the 10 tribes to what's called the north when you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, and that often is referred to as Israel. It's not all of Israel technically, but it's often referred to as Israel. And in the south, Solomon's son, after Solomon passed away, uh, Rehoboam would have only two tribes to the south, Jerusalem or, and Judah. Uh, it's often called in the Old Testament. So he would have Judah and he would have Benjamin. Those were the two tribes. And so when you see Jerusalem referred to in those books or Judah, that's talking about the south. When you see Israel, that's talking about the north. There's a civil war in the nation. And you see it takes place when uh, Jeroboam starts to challenge Rehoboam's leadership and Rehoboam is going to hit the people with these heavy taxes and he, he tries to get advice from, from uh, uh, he gets bad advice really from some of his younger uh, entourage and they say, they say squeeze the people, squeeze them and, and, and tax them and put a heavy yoke upon them and the people rebel and they follow after Jeroboam and you have this civil war that takes place in 922 BC. Some scholars say 930 but we'll say 922 for argument's sake. Are you with me so far? You say what's this got to do with Elijah and his depression? Hold on. Okay, so what Jeroboam did to the north, because he was not in charge of the south, he lost the south to Rehoboam, uh, where Jerusalem was, where the temple was. So because he lost that, he starts to get nervous. And he says, well, the people are, are going to want to go back to the temple to worship and to offer sacrifices. And they're, they're going to go and they're going to follow Rehoboam and they're going to they're kill me. So I, in order to keep my leadership uh, of, the, of these ten nations, I'm going I'm to design an elaborate worship system of my own. So effectively, what he does is he brings in his own kind of uh, uh, all-dressed pizza religion. Uh, he brings in a couple of golden calves and starts offering sacrifices to golden calves. He starts appointing priests. He starts uh, making up worship days. And he basically invents um, an all-dressed pizza mishmash uh, religious view to get the people, okay, at least now they have a place to offer sacrifices. At least now they can worship and they don't have to go back to Jerusalem. And I will keep my leadership over these people. So one of the things he does is he sets up these golden calves. Uh, sounds very similar to what happened in the book of Exodus. If you remember, while Moses was on the mountain, they set up these golden calves, well, very similar here, and the people buy it, and the people fall for it. And so, I mean, not only is the nation split because of Solomon's bad decisions, you've got Israel to the north, and Jeroboam, the first king of this kind of divided uh, nation, he's going he's gonna to mess things up even more. He's going to bring in golden calves, invent his own religious view, and it's an absolute nightmare 
what's going on in Israel at that time, 2,800 years ago. And if you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, and they, they overlap in some places, you see that to the north, all of the kings, every single one of them, were all bad kings. They all follow in the ways of Jeroboam. They all set up all kinds of false, they, they follow false gods. They do all kinds of things that you can't mention in homage to these gods. It's a gruesome picture. It's a terrible time in their history. And every single one of those kings in Israel to the north, in Israel's history would be a bad king. Every single one of them. And that that they would never be the same again until the year 722 when the Assyrians come in and take them out and they, they actually bring in people into the land and intermarry with them. That's where you get the ethnicity of the Samaritans, you know, the feud between the, 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 the people in the south, the Judeans and the Samaritans. Remember Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well? And why he was frowned upon talking to that Samaritan woman? Well, because she was the offspring of the Assyrian takeover in 722. So Israel would never be the same again because of Solomon's terrible decisions. And every single king after Solomon who followed him in Israel, was they were all bad. Jerusalem to the south, most of them were bad. You have one or two exceptions, but most of them are bad. So it's a really dark time in the nation. It's violent. You've got all these religious views going on. And so you say, okay, what's that got to do with Elijah and his depression? Hold on, I'm getting there. Because from Jeroboam, you move through a litany of kings until you get to this King Ahab who we referred to in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. So just I put it on the screen for you and summarize it, try and make it really, really quick for you. So you have Jeroboam, he reigns in Israel for 22 years and you can see that in 1 Kings chapter 14 verse 20. He's ungodly, he brings in this, again, this whole new false worship system. Then you have a king who follows him. His name is Nadab. And again, you can read the references and it's like the same tired old story. Every time you read one of these kings, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. One after the other after the other. There's all kinds of infighting. There's assassinations. There's takeovers. I mean, we complain about our leaders today. <laughs> the leaders back then, as corrupt as you could possibly imagine. Some of them reigned for very long periods of time. Some of them reigned for the shortest one is Zimri, seven days. I mean, you have to read the accounts. Just, just take a cup of tea and read three, four chapters uh, from 1 Kings chapter 14 to 1 Kings chapter 16. And you're going to sit there and go, oh my goodness, what a horrible story. One after the other after the other. You have Basha, 24 years. You've got Elah, two years. You've got Zimri, seven days. You've got Omri, really bad king. Okay, I'll read that one for you. First, First Kings chapter 16, uh, 25 to 26. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. I mean, wow. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and, and in his sin, which had caused Israel, uh, which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. And he, he did worse, apparently, than all the other ones before him, right going back to Jeroboam. And then finally, you have this king, Ahab. 
And this is in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's the king to the south, Ahab, the son of Omri, becomes king in Israel. And he reigns in Samaria, that was the, the, the new capital of Israel that had been established by one of those previous nasty kings. So he reigned in Samaria over, uh, over Israel for 22 years. Bad king. But watch this. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He's the worst of the lot so far, according to the writer here of 1 Kings. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel. Jezebel. Oh boy, what a woman she was. Daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal. So now you have another false god introduced into the system and worship him. He, he, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple and in Samaria. And not only that, but he made an Asherah pole, another god, and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger more than, more than did all the kings of Israel before him. Nasty. And he added those extra gods because of his wife, Jezebel, who is from Sidon, and those gods are from Sidon. Let me show you some pictures here. Uh, you've got uh, uh, on, the, on the left side and on the right side, that is, those are images of Baal, the storm god. So the belief was that he controlled the weather, and it's typical that you see his right hand up in the air there, and the idea was that he could control the weather. And in the middle, you see it's not a real Asherah pole, but it's what people thought an Asherah pole would be. And similar to Baal, and in their mythology, Baal and Asherah were, were kind of cohorts. Uh, I'll let you use your imagination there. And I mean, it's just a really, really nasty time. Are you with me so far? Okay, little history lesson. So in comes the prophet Elijah into this mess. This is where, this is where he drops onto the pages of Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. He's the one who has to deal with the worst king of the lot, Ahab. Now Elijah the Tishbite, he said to Ahab, this is how we're introduced to Elijah, the great prophet. This is how he comes onto the pages. This is what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. Remember James said he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It's interesting. Kings doesn't even record the prayer. But this is what it's referring to. As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be no, neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Wow, can you imagine saying that to this king? So Elijah, he worships the true God. He worships Yahweh. He worships Jehovah. Uh, Ahab has brought in Baal, the storm god. And so Elijah gets right in his business. Remember we talked about John the Baptist getting in the face of Herod Antipas. Well, Elijah was very similar to that. He gets right in the face of this politician who brought in all of this false worship. And he says, now you hear this because my God is the one who controls the weather, 
not your Baal. There'll be no rain. He's going to judge you. He's going to punish you, king, because you have brought in this false god. What this is, is a direct and harsh confrontation. This man is really putting a, a bullseye on his back because he knows very, very well who Ahab's wife is. And he knows very, very well that it's Ahab's wife who was a worshiper of Baal. She's the one who brought all this stuff in and Ahab went along with it as you know, a lot of husbands tend to do that. <laughs> he went along with it and here comes all these false gods. No problem for him. Well, not, not for Elijah. He's, he's saying the buck stops here, mister. And it's, this is a direct and harsh confrontation. And he puts, his, he puts his reputation on the line, really. And he puts, in a sense, his life on the line because he knows very well this is going to get to Jezebel's ears. And she is not going to be happy at this. But this is where you first see Elijah. Confrontation. Wow. And so, the, the verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide. In the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan, you will drink from the brook. And I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. What does he have to do? Immediately after this confrontation, he has got to run. He must hide because Jezebel is going to run around and she had a, seems to have a delight for executing any prophet in Israel who worshipped Yahweh, who worshipped Jehovah. So God tells Elijah, now you need to run, you need to hide, because you will be persecuted because of this challenge. You have challenged this God. Do you understand so far? So this is how this man jumps onto the pages of Scripture. First you've got confrontation, and then you've got persecution and hiding that he has to do right away. And then you start watching and you see, okay, what, what happens next? You read through 1 Kings chapter 17 and he runs into a, a widow in a place called Zarephath. You don't really need to know where that is, but he, he runs into this, this person and, um, and, and God seems to have directed him to have this, this um, uh, connection with her. And he, he tells uh, Elijah, you go at once to Zarephath uh, of Sidon. Remember, that's where Jezebel came from, of Sidon, and stay there. And uh, I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So, long story short, he goes, he runs into the widow, and he says to her, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And uh, please, a piece of bread. And the, uh, the lady's reply is, um, I don't have any bread, I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, that's all I have. I'm gathering a few sticks, she says, to take home and make a meal for myself and my son. Remember, her husband has passed away, she's a widow. Very bad. If you're, if you're mid-9th century BC and you live over there and your husband has passed away, very, very bad news if you're, if you're in that situation because your sustenance is gone. And so she says, uh, I'm going to make one last meal that we may eat it and die. Wow. And so Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. You go home and do as you've said. 
make, uh, first make a small cake of bread for me <laughs> and from whatever you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Again, he's confrontational. He puts his reputation on the line. He's so incredibly direct. He, he, there's, no, there's no plan B for Elijah. Either God comes through or everything falls apart. That's the way he, that's his style. That's the way that he operates. And he says, listen, as sure as the God of Israel lives, the jar of flour will not be used up. And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Remember, they're in the midst of a drought that, it, that Elijah ushered in. And that's another reason why this woman is on her last meal. And so what is this? This is going to be a miracle of multiplication. Look suspiciously like what somebody else did in the New Testament whose name happens to be Jesus. Remember all the multiplication miracles of Jesus? Well, here you see a multiplication miracle. She goes away. She does exactly what she's told. And lo and behold, the word of God from this man comes true. And she, the oil's still there. And the, the flower's still there. And she lives another day and another day and another day and another day. Verse 17, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. Goodness, she lost her husband. She runs into the prophet. He does this miracle of sustenance and provision for them. And now the boy is dying. He grows worse and worse. And finally, he stops breathing. And she says to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Why has this happened? Have you come to remind me of my sin somehow and kill my son? Like, is this some kind of a practical joke that's going on here is basically what she's saying. And Elijah says, again, you see, he's got this, this way of ministering. It's either black or white. It's either God or it's over. And he says, give me your son. And he takes the boy into into his arms. He goes into an upper room. Uh, he cries out to God and he, he, he lays the boy on his bed, cries out to God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow that I am staying with by causing her son to die? And he stretches himself out over the boy three times. So the first time maybe didn't work, second time maybe didn't work, third time, three times, and he cries out, Oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Uh, we watched a movie in this room called, um, what's it called, the movie we saw with the boy who drowned? Breakthrough. Yeah, you should see that movie too. Yeah, that's an authentic story of, of a boy who, who drowned to death and was, he was gone for about an hour. No pulse for about an hour until the mother came in there, belts out this prayer in the hospital room, and the boy gets a pulse. I mean, it's a really, really odd, bizarre, unique story. It has echoes of this in it, I suppose. But the boy comes back to life. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned turned to him and he lived. Wow, look, your son is alive. And she says to Elijah, now I know you're the man of God. The word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. I mean, look at the way he has to persevere 
over and over again for him. It's black or it's white. It's God or it's over. I mean, that's, that's his makeup. That's the way that he behaves. That's his style. That's his wiring. You continue to read. And what have you got in 1 Kings chapter 18? You've got another confrontation again. And this one is like one of the most dramatic in all of Scripture. You can preach sermon after sermon and write book after book on this. And so Elijah is told by God, go back to Ahab and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. The drought is going to end so says God. And so Elijah goes to present himself to Ahab. We're told in the text the famine was severe in Samaria. Again, that's the capital to the north there of Israel. And Ahab, he, he had summoned one of his administrators, a man by the name of Obadiah who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah, we're told, is a devout believer. And what he happens to do is he secretly hides a group of prophets, a hundred of them, in two caves. So he knows that Jezebel has a delight in executing the prophets of Yahweh. And so what does he do as a devout follower of Yahweh? He says, I'm going to hide these prophets secretly, even though I work for the boss and I know what his wife is doing. Puts a very risky move there, but this is what he, we're introduced to him this way. And, and Ahab, while they, while they were looking for food, again, he had sent his administrator, said, you go one way, I'll go another way. We're going to try and find some food in this miserable drought for our animals, maybe some water, some food, so we won't have to kill all of our animals. So they had divided land and gone to look for food. And that's where Obadiah runs into Elijah who is looking for Ahab. The two of them have a conversation. And Elijah says, I'm to present myself to Ahab. And Obadiah says, excuse me, you do that and I'm going to lose my life. Like, how do I know that you're not going to vanish somewhere? You're this prophet of God. Like, how do I know that this is really going to happen? Haven't you heard what Jezebel is doing to prophets? If she finds out that I've been, like, it's not, you're, why are you doing this to me? You're putting me in a real awkward situation, Elijah. And Elijah says, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Whew, confrontation. Here we go again. And so Obadiah goes to meet Ahab, goes to the boss, and Ahab goes to meet Elijah. Boom, the two of them run into each other after all those years, and presumably three and a half years as per James and what he wrote in the book of James. When he sees Elijah, he says to him, oh, it's so good to see you, prophet, where have you been? No, he doesn't say that. He says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Like, you are the cause of all the problems that we are having here. It's your fault. You and this drought, you have caused nothing but trouble. I've not made any trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, confrontation. But you, your father's family, you have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Remember the weather god, Baal, with his arm up in the air. Now, summon the people. I mean, 
confrontation. God doesn't even tell him to do this confrontation. We have no comment that God tells him to do this. He just does it. Now, presumably God is behind it, but he just does it. He says, summon the people from all over Israel and meet me at the OK Corral on Mount Carmel. You get everybody from Israel over there. And by the way, bring the 450 prophets, 450 of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. That's 850 prophets who eat at Jezebel's table. Oh, he pushed the button there. Talking about the man's wife, right? He pushed the button. Who eat at Jezebel's table. Confrontation. So Ahab sent word through Israel, so we're going to get it on at the OK Corral at Mount Carmel. He assembled the prophets at Mount Car Carmel, and Elijah went before all these people. I mean, he's alone. He's got 850 to 1. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver? He's talking to the public at large between two opinions. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Let's get it on. So you talk about, this is one of the most dramatic confrontations in the entire Bible, but the people said nothing. And then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 I mean, this should be easy for you, he's saying. Look, here's what we'll do. Get two, two animals, get two bulls. Again, 2,800, 2,900-year-old culture, different part of the world, okay? Respect the context of it. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but don't set any fire to it. So make a sacrifice, but don't burn it, is what he's saying. And I will prepare the other bowl and put, on, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. So we have a kind of a level playing field, okay? He says, These are, this is my challenge to you. And you call upon the name of your God. Like you pray like you've never prayed before to Baal, and, you, and, I, and, and I will call upon the name of mine. And the God who answers by fire, the God who burns up the sacrifice, he's the one true God. Elijah says that. So he's basically saying, how do you like my terms? <laughs> and the people buy it. And they say, what you say is good. I mean, they're confident that this is going to be easy. And Baal is going to show his face. And, and, and Elijah is going to lose his life. This is a life or death confrontation here. Because whoever loses, they're going to lose their lives. Elijah knows it. Uh, the prophets know it. Ahab knows it. People are going to die that day, depending on which God shows up, because the other people will turn on the false God. They knew all of this was happening. It is a dramatic and intense confrontation. And so they, 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 they do as he says, and they call upon the name of Baal like from morning till noon. And they call upon him and they dance and they shout on the, around the altar and they do whatever they can do to get Baal's attention. And Elijah starts taunting them. I mean, he's so confrontational. He taunts them and taunts them. He says, what's wrong with you? You're not loud enough. Shout louder. 
And so the people, he says, look, surely he's a god, this Baal. Maybe he's on Instagram. Maybe he's in deep thought. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. And he's, he's taunting them. And they, of course, buy his taunt. And then they start getting really gruesome. And they, they start cutting themselves with, with swords and spears and all this. And nothing happens. Midday passes, they continue, nothing, no answer, no, no God pays attention. And Elijah says to all the people, the crowd, he says, come here to me. And, he, and they come to him, and uh, he repairs the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. This is an old altar from prior times. And Elijah takes 12 stones, one of them from each of the tribes descended from Jacob, and uh, to whom the word of the Lord had come. And he says, your name shall be Israel. Again, this is, this is in the history there. This is that altar. And so he says, with the stones, or the writer says, with the stones, he builds an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug the trench around it, and, and it's a big trench around this altar purposefully so it can hold quite a large amount of water and he digs this trench he arranges the wood he cuts the bulls and the bull into pieces just as the other group had done and he says okay now i want you to take water and i want you to throw water on it pour water on it and pour it and pour it and pour it until the water goes into the very trench Time of the sacrifice comes. This would be the sacrifice to Yahweh. Elijah steps forward, prays a really, really simple, but it's do or die kind of prayer. Oh Lord, God of Abram, uh, uh, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, oh Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And you know the story, the fire comes down and not only consumes the sacrifice, it consumes the water. You talk about a display. You talk about a confrontation. Baal is ruined in the eyes of the people. And Elijah says, don't let any of them get away. And they all lose their lives that day in the Kishon Valley. Again, respect the context of it. This is 2,900 years old. This is, if you don't do it to them, they're doing it to you. This is a very violent and dark culture in a dark time in Israel's history. All these false prophets lose their lives. And then Elijah says to Ahab, and we'll, we'll conclude in just a few moments, go and eat and drink, my friend, for there is the sound of heavy rain. There wasn't a drop of rain or dew for three and a half years. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, and Elijah climbs up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bends down to the ground and puts his head between his knees. And he says to his servants, to his servant, he says, go and look toward the sea. And the servant goes, presumably Elijah's servant, we don't know his name, he goes and he went and looked, and Elijah presumably has got his head between his knees praying, uh, earnestly as James says in the book of James and servant comes back he says there's nothing there he says well go look again <laughs> and Elijah bends down prays and it's seven times wow talk about perseverance you know See, nothing comes easy for this guy it seems it's seven times and his servant comes back and he says oh, oh, oh I see a cloud the size of a man's hand 
put your hand up to the sky one day and look and imagine what that would have looked like to him. That's the image. I see a cloud the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. So Elijah says, you go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and get down before the rain stops you. And meanwhile, the sky grows black. I mean, not gray, black with clouds. The wind rises, a heavy rain. It comes down on Ahab, and Ahab rides off to Jezreel in a chariot. And then we're told, verse 46, don't miss it, the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. It's 17-mile marathon, and he beats the king, even though the king's on a horse. What a, I mean, incredible drama. And so you put it all together, confrontation, persecution, hiding, has to persevere, lay yourself on that boy three times, get your head between your knees seven times, pray, pray, pray earnestly. Then he has another confrontation, and then he's what? Exhausted. You ever run 17 miles? We have somebody here who's going to run, I don't know if he's still in the room, Simon. He's going to do a half marathon this coming Sunday. So 17 miles he runs, and he beats the guy on the horse. And then you see the text that we ran at the beginning of the message, the text that we read, sorry, at the beginning of the message, how Jezebel hears what Elijah did at the Kishon Valley to all those false prophets and knows of the confrontation that her God lost. And she threatens Elijah, one woman, and he is terrified runs for his life as a result and prays that God would take his life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Take my life. And he lies down and he goes to sleep. That recipe, confrontation, persecution, persevering all the time, confrontation, physical exhaustion, that is a perfect storm. That is a perfect uh, uh, brew for depression. It is. If you are constantly in a mode of confrontation, if you are constantly feeling like you're on the run and being and persecuted, we talked a bit about that last week, if you constantly are in that sort of, it's, it's God or it's nothing, and it's confrontation again, and you're physically exhausted, that is a perfect recipe for depression. And you see in this statement that he will make again and again, you'll see it in 1 Kings 19, we'll pick it up up in two weeks uh, and, and look at uh, the response of God and how Elijah deals with this. This man, and many psychologists have observed this, this man is in a depression. He is dealing with it. You say, how is it possible that he could have, he could have confronted 850 prophets and yet he's so intimidated by this one woman? Why doesn't he just say, come over here and get what's coming to you, Jezebel? Like, you've been waiting for it for a long time. All I have to do is call down fire from heaven and you're finished. No, he runs for his life and prays to God that God would take his life. Why? Because he has completely bottomed out. 
and he is down in the dumps and he is in a depression. He is exhausted. And you will see that in, in, in chapter 19. One lesson for you to take home and one only. Even the most godly people, even people of great faith, even people of great perseverance can suffer through depression. Elijah is not the only one. Read some of the Psalms of King David. Ooh, I mean, there's some dark, dark moments in that man's life. You do a look at some of the great, great preachers of yesteryear, 100 years, 200 years ago. Many of them struggled with very, very dark moments in their lives that we would, we would call today, we would label that as depression. I believe it is so common in the church today. But we do not want to talk about it because we say, well, it's impossible for a Christian to ever go through a bout of depression. I would challenge that. I believe that this is what we are looking at in this man's life. I'm not the only one. There are many people who have observed this, people of faith and not of faith, as they look at the conditions of this man's life. So you are not alone. And I believe there are people in this room and you're real nervous right now because you're wondering how I know you're depressed. I don't, but God does. I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. You're not alone. If Elijah could go through it, what makes you any different? He was a man just like us.